Good morning, church. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Our scripture today is found in Genesis chapter 17. Uh, Please turn there. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 14. Starting in verse 1. These were the promises made to Abraham. And God also makes promises to us, and they will never fail. Whatever promises he has in scripture towards Abraham or us, they will not fail. Starting in verse 1. And when Abram was 90 years old, excuse me, and when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and unto him, and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me, and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee, and will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be the father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be called Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made thee. And I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and kings that come shall come out of thee. And I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. And I will give thee, and I will give unto thee, and to thy seed after thee, the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said unto Abraham, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. This is my covenant which ye shall keep between me and and you and thy seed and thee. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. And he that is eight years old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations, he that is born in the house or brought with money of any stranger which is not of thy seed, he that is born in thy house and he that is brought bought with, with the, by money much needs be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in you, flesh shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised man shall, child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised, that that soul shall be cut off from his people. He hath broken my covenant. May the Lord Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you. Turn to Genesis chapter 17. And we're continuing our series on the life of Abraham. Today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 17. The message that I will preach to you today, I've entitled, Why Obey? Very simply, Why Obey? As Abraham once again surrenders to the unknown. As a 99-year-old man now, 99 years old, and Abraham is just getting ready to live. (laughs) Why Obey? Now, I apologize that I noticed as I opened up the bulletin today that the Wrong outline is in your bulletin. 
That's last week's sermon without any blanks. So in case you wondered what some of those blanks were, you have them. <laughs> but, but you don't have the outline for today. It was sent out in the email, though, if you have it there in the constant contact email that I do send out to you. But today, we're going to look at why we need to obey. And this chapter really emphasizes for us the, the obligations that Abraham has in this covenant that God has made with him. What are his responsibilities to obey? Why? This chapter gives us four great reasons why Abraham and why all of us should obey God. Amen? As we begin today, let's just read verse 1 and then we'll pray. And when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me, and be thou perfect. So what we want to see today is that although God made a covenant with Abraham that was unconditional, that is, God made it unilaterally, all by Himself. He said, this is what I'm going to do, no matter what. Abraham still has an obligation to obey. Even though God is making an unconditional, unilateral covenant, Abraham is still to obey. And that's just like us. I mean, just think of us. We're saved by grace through faith. How many works do we do to save ourselves? None. So salvation is all of grace. It's all of mercy. As we just sang, a debtor to mercy alone. But that doesn't mean we are not to obey God. So let's look at this this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank You now for this day. Lord, teach us to obey as Abraham right away, without delay, with a happy heart as You speak. Thank You, Lord. You are worthy for us to love because You're a God of love. You're worthy for us to serve because You have given so much to us. And you are worthy for us to obey because all your ways are right. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Genesis 15, when we were in Genesis 15, remember, that was the first time where it says in the Scripture that God was making a covenant with Abraham. And the word covenant is only mentioned one time in Genesis 15. But it's very important because it's the first time God said, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you. And we look there, that that covenant was made with blood. Remember, Abraham took those three different animals and he cut them in two. And then he took two birds and killed them, put one bird on one side, one bird on the other. So he had two rows of dead animals. And there was a custom of Abraham's day when two people were making a covenant. Humans did this in their contracts, in their agreements with each other. They would walk together through those animals as a sign saying, if I don't keep my word, you can cut me and kill me just like these animals have been cut and killed. So who walked through those animals? Did Abraham walk through them to establish that covenant with God? No. The point of Genesis 15 is that God alone, through that iron furnace and the smoking torch alone went through those those cut up animals. God alone, unconditionally, unilaterally was establishing this covenant with Abraham. 
now in this chapter, the word covenant isn't mentioned just one time. It's mentioned 13 times. And this chapter emphasizes, the main emphasis of this chapter is Abraham's obligation to obey God because of this awesome covenant, this contract, this agreement God has made. You see, God has said in this unconditional unilateral covenant, He said, I am going to send a seed no matter what you do. And the seed is who? Ultimately, Jesus Christ. And for Abraham, it would be he had a son Isaac, who had a son Jacob, who had 12 sons, who had the nation of Israel, who ultimately out of that would be born Jesus Christ. Once Abraham decided to leave his homeland of the Ur of the Chaldees, he set in motion, he triggered, if you will, ultimately this covenant, and God says, I'm going to do it no matter what. I'm going to send you the seed. I'm going to give a land to the seed. And I'm going to bless you and your seed. The three things of the covenant are the seed, the land, the blessing. God says, I'm going to do it no matter what. But as I said, this chapter emphasizes Abraham's obligation. And the key element of his obedience in this chapter is to be what? Does it say in verse number 10? To be what? Of Genesis 17, verse 10. Now a seed means he's going to have a child. That means he has to have intimacy with his 90-year-old wife. And Abraham is 99 years old. And I don't know, I, you can at least see the sense of humor in this a little bit. God tells this 99-year-old man who's never had a child through his wife to cut your private area, draw blood, and do what? What does it say? He had to be what? Circumcised. That's what the emphasis of this chapter is in his obedience. And from verses 9 through 14, really the heart of this chapter, God tells Abraham to get circumcised. Which is both, and it says, look at verse 11, he says, And you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a, what's the word there? A token of the covenant between me and thee. A token is a sign and a seal of this covenant. A sign and a seal of this covenant. I want us to go to Romans, please, chapter 4. And verses 9 through 11, very important. And we see circumcision mentioned quite a bit in the New Testament. And we're going to talk about it a little bit today based on this passage. Romans chapter 9, or 4, Romans chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, Paul is using Abraham as an example of one who was saved by grace, one who was saved apart from any works. One who just believed God, and because of his faith, he was counted what in God's sight? God reckoned him and counted him as what? Righteous. Genesis 15, verse 6. That happened. Abraham has already, already been saved, if you will. He's already been counted righteous in the eyes of God. Paul's making this point in this passage that circumcision didn't save Abraham. And circumcision has never saved any man. 
just as you were not saved through your baptism or by taking the Lord's Supper. Abraham was not saved. No Jewish person has ever been saved by being circumcised. Abraham was saved before he was circumcised. That's Paul's point. Let's read it. Romans chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Cometh this blessedness, this blessedness of forgiveness and salvation. He's saying, Cometh this blessedness upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? Paul's saying, Can an uncircumcised person be saved? Well, certainly Abraham was. <laughs> he says, For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. Abraham was saved on the basis of faith. And then verse 19, how then was it reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? So was Abraham reckoned righteous when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul says it, when he was in uncircumcision. Verse 11, for he received... Now here it is, the word token is used in Genesis 17. Look what Paul says. For he received the sign of circumcision... A seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also, verse 12, and the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. So, now here's the, and I have it up here on the screen. Circumcision was a sign, Paul says, in verse 11, you should underline that, a sign and a seal. You see that in verse 11? A sign. What's the difference? A sign is a distinguishing mark. Circumcision was a distinguishing mark upon a male. A man, right? Now, that word is used for the rainbow God put in the sky as a sign of His covenant agreement with Noah. The rainbow was a sign that God is not going to destroy any, the world anymore with water. It's a sign. So a sign is a distinguishing mark. A rainbow is a distinguishing mark. Circumcision upon a man in Old Testament times was a distinguishing mark. It identified them as... Believing in the covenant agreement God made with Abraham. And it was also a seal. It was a proof of ownership. A proof of one's consecration to God. So it was a mark and it was a proof. A sign and a seal. In what three ways? Well, in these three ways. It was a personal sign and seal. It was a public sign and seal. And it was a purity sign and seal. I was thinking about this that... You know, I remember when I was a kid, a lot of my classmates would get their tonsils out. And they said back then, oh, you, you know, kids don't really need their tonsils, so if they have any infection, just take them out. And then they realized, whoops, actually your tonsils have value. We shouldn't take them out so quickly. And then, there, and then we have another piece in our body called an appendix. And some people say, oh, yeah, you don't really need your appendix. It's just hanging there, you know. And sometimes it gets full of infection. And, you, you know, when you have an appendicitis, you have to take your appendix out. And so for a while they said, too, there's really no purpose of your appendix, you know. Yes, there is, actually. God put your appendix in there for a purpose and your tonsils. Every part of our body, God puts in for a purpose, except one part you can cut off. You know what part I'm talking about. 
the foreskin of the male private area. Isn't that amazing now? God says you could cut that. <laughs> Come on, you got to laugh about this, you know. Here's a 99-year-old man, and he's like, what? <laughs> you know, he's like, don't cut me there. I'm not going to have a baby. <laughs> I, I, don't know, I, I found it pretty humorous myself. <sighs> but this was a personal sign and seal. Circumcision was to be a lifelong reminder of one's personal faith in God. It would remind them every day, you know. It was a distinguishing mark that identified them as a believing people. It proved their ownership to God. Abraham was already saved when he was circumcised. Circumcised ne- circumcision never saved Abraham. Or anyone else for that matter. But it was to be a sign that I have believed in God for the Old Testament people. It was a personal sign. But it was also a public sign. Now this is amazing how, how it could be... Something so personal could be public, right? But let me ask you this question. Did Jesus get circumcised? We know that. It was public. When he was eight days old, they brought Jesus into the temple and he was circumcised. Was John the Baptist circumcised? The Bible tells us he was. Was Abraham circumcised? We all know it. (laughs) We all know their personal business here, if you will. So it was something personal, but yet it was something that every Paul even said, I was circumcised the eighth day. I'm not embarrassed to tell you. Paul said it in Philippians chapter 3. So it's quite amazing. And there's a reason for that. It's just it's a picture of our salvation. Salvation is the most personal thing that will ever happen to you. It's something done in your heart. And something you yourself know has taken place. You've been born again. The Holy Spirit has come in you, right? But something so private is then publicly lived out. Some, true salvation. Some people say, oh no, don't talk to me about my religion because that's just my private business. Well, it is your private business, but once you're saved, you know what? You should let people know publicly and not be ashamed of the gospel. So that's the idea of circumcision. It was public, it was private. And the essence of it was purity. Purity. Circumcision was a sign and seal in the removal of the flesh. It was a sign and seal of one's act of dedication to keep the marriage act of intimacy between a husband and a wife. And think of this now, you're you're circumcising that through which the male seed flows... And this was the ultimate point of the promise of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was going to have a seed. And God wanted that seed to be pure. The seed wasn't going to come through Hagar. It was going to come through his wife, Sarah. Now, it's amazing that they actually say that the removal of the flesh in male circumcision is is good for one's general health and cleanliness very often. So there's a, there's a health benefit for it. I'm not saying anyone should be circumcised either. I'm not, but I'm saying that the removal of that foreskin could have a health benefit. Why many people still choose circumcision, even not even as a religious for a religious reason. And in that sense, it's kind of interesting to me that a godly life 
will lead to a more healthy life, generally. In other words, when you live for Jesus Christ, you're not going to go out and commit adultery and fornication and and get all these sexually transmitted diseases. You're not going to live in drunkenness and get cirrhosis of the liver. And you're not going to go off and do drug abusing and, you know, ruin your life through putting dirty needles in your arm. A godly life is a more healthy life. In that sense, circumcision. But that's not the purpose of circumcision. It wasn't just for one's health benefit. It was a symbol of having a heart that was clean. That one would not go along with human reasoning and carnal behavior. From the very beginning, the physical sign of circumcision, follow this now, the physical sign of circumcision had a spiritual meaning that one was separating themselves apart to God to live pure. It's a reminder to men to maintain sexual purity, to keep their seed pure. That's why God told Abraham to circumcise. The spiritual meaning of this physical sign in the putting away of of human flesh was to put away sin in the human heart. And there's verses about this, even in the Law and the Prophets. In other words, just like for us, baptism is a sign, right? It's a sign. It's a sign of what we believe. It's an outward picture of what we believe in our heart. That's what It was a sign. It was an outward sign of an inward reality. And the inward reality of circumcision is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. The Lord thy God will circumcise, what? Thine heart. And the heart of thy seed, to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. So if somebody was physically circumcised, but they didn't love God, and weren't living a pure life, it was useless. The prophet Jeremiah says something similar. He says, circumcise yourselves therefore to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart. Take away the foreskin of your heart. The fleshly part of your heart. Take it away, ye men of inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire, burn that none can quench it, because of the evil of your doings. Deuteronomy 10.16, many people believe Jeremiah is actually quoting, if you want to mark this down from Deuteronomy 10.16, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Be no more stiff-necked. So the idea of circumcision was to have a soft heart, to have a clean heart, to be pure. God is holy, and we are to be what? Holy, as He is holy. So, this was the obedience. Now, why should Abraham obey and get circumcised as a 90... What what difference does it make? I'm already saved. (laughs) See, why should you obey? Why shouldn't you get baptized if you're saved? Yeah, I'm already saved. I'm already going to heaven. Why should I tell anybody about Jesus? I'm, I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. That's what I care about. Why should I be obedient to tell people about Jesus? Why obey God? I want to tell you why you should obey God. Why you should obey God to read your Bible. Why you should obey God to be a faithful church member. Why you should obey God to be a witness for Jesus Christ. Why you should obey God to love your wife. And why you should obey God to submit to your husbands. Why you should obey God to get baptized, to take the Lord's Supper. Why should you obey God? I want to give four incredible motivations. The first one is because of His glorious person. You're going to have to write down the outline. It's a good outline. The glorious person of God. 
Now watch this. In, in Genesis chapter 17, after 13 years of silence, and what I find so amazing is that more time passed between the last verse of chapter 16 to the first verse of 17, because Abraham was 86 years old when we left him at the end of chapter 16. 13 years have passed, now he's 99. And it seems that God had not appeared to him for those 13 years, he had to wait. And more time passes between these two verses than passed between Genesis 12, he was 75, and the end of chapter 16 where he's 86. Only 11 years passed, you see what I'm saying? More years passed from the end of 16 to 17 than, have, than we've seen in Abraham's life. He's waiting. 13 years of silence. But now God's presence breaks through. God's voice shines forth. He says, the Lord appeared to Abraham. That's his presence. And God said to him, that's his voice. And he said, I am the Almighty God. That's his name. God's name is revealed as His presence breaks through, His voice shines forth, I am the Almighty God. What a beautiful name. The name, of course, is what we sang. You say, why do we sing that song? El Shaddai. El Shaddai is God Almighty of Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. First time this name for God appears in the Bible. A beautiful name. El Shaddai. God Almighty. What does this name mean? It demonstrates God's omnipotence to make His child fruitful. Fruitfulness is often associated with El Shaddai. Do you need to bear fruit? The fruit of love, joy, or peace? Or maybe you're praying God would give you children? Call upon El Shaddai. The God of omnipotence who makes His children fruitful. And watch this. Even works contrary to nature... Because that's what God is going to do with Abraham. He's 99. His wife is 90. His body was as good as dead, it says. There's no way, humanly speaking, and he knew it and everybody else knew it, he could have a child, neither Sarah have a, bear a, a, a child at this late time. God was going to work contrary to nature, fulfilling his promise, and he will satisfy and supply. He's the all-sufficient one who can do the impossible. Hallelujah. Our El Shaddai. The first number of times El Shaddai is used in Genesis, it relates to being how God blesses and makes His people fruitful. I want to look just at a couple of those verses. Go to Genesis 28, verse 3. Isaac is here speaking to Jacob in Genesis 28. If you look there, please, in verse 3. If you can go there to Genesis chapter 28, verse 3. And he says, Now therefore I take thee, that's all, I'm sorry, Genesis 28, verse 3. And God Almighty bless thee and make thee fruitful and multiply thee that thou mayest be a multitude of people. Do you see that? El Shaddai, bless thee, make thee fruitful. God says, I am Almighty God. And in verse 2 He says, I will multiply thee exceedingly. And He goes on down through the passage. I, I will make nations of thee. I will make the exceeding fruitful. So El Shaddai is associated with God blessing His people and making them fruitful. Look at one other scripture. Look at Genesis 35, verse 11. And here, God is speaking to Jacob of his changed name. And God says to Jacob in Genesis 35, 11, 
And God said unto him, I am God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be out of thee, and kings shall come out of thy loins. Similar to what God speaks to Abraham in Genesis 17. The point is, is that El Shaddai often emphasizes the power of God to make His children fruitful. Do you want fruit? Do you want to bear fruit? Spiritual fruit? The fruit of soul saved? Praise to our God who is El Shaddai. He's the God who can prosper. And bless the people. And then it may, you know, the name of God is a strong tower. In Abraham's life, we're learning the name of God. It's like, a, it's like a Bible course in the name of God. When he met Melchizedek, we learn what name of God when he met Melchizedek. The Most High God who is El Elyon, another combination of God with the name of of Elohim. El, the God of creation, Elohim, El Elyon, the Most High God. Then Hagar met the Lord, and the Lord, the angel of the Lord, revealed himself to Hagar as El Roi. We looked at that, I am the God who sees you wherever you are. And here we learn the name of God, El Shaddai. The God who will prosper us. The God who can do miracles for us. The God who works contrary to nature to fulfill His promises. And so God says, because of this, because of who I am, because of my mighty name, He says, walk before me and be thou perfect. At the end of verse 1, walk before me. That's live a God-conscious life. And be thou perfect. That's live a God-committed life. Walk before me. That's live a life of devotion. And be thou perfect. That's live a life of duty. Walk before me. That's the Hagar lesson. Remember the Hagar lesson we learned last week when Hagar went out into the wilderness and she understood when the angel of the Lord met her that God knew her, God heard her, and told her to name her son Ishmael, which means, remember what Ishmael means? It means God hears. Hagar knew God knew her, God heard her, and thou God, El Roi, sees me. And Abraham is to walk before God because he is El Roi, the God who knows, hears, and sees us, but now he is El Shaddai, the God who will prosper us. That's the Hagar lesson. And be perfect. You know who it says was perfect before the Lord? If not, not perfect as in sinless, but mature and righteous and fulfilled his duty before God. That was Noah. This was the Noah life. This reminded Abraham to walk before God as Noah himself walked. Live a God-conscious life. Aren't you conscious of God when you wake up in the morning? You're conscious that He sees you? That He'll prosper you? He'll bless you. He loves you. Oh God, you see me. Oh God, you can do miracles for me. He's our El Shaddai. Oh God, you'll work contrary to nature even when I'm old. You could still make me fruitful. A God-conscious life. A God-committed life. Unblameable in holiness. Be perfect. So the first reason... To obey God is His glorious person. The second reason we should obey God, not because His person is glorious, but His promises are great. The great promises of God motivate our obedience. 
Look at what is repeated in verses, and we're looking especially at verses 4 through 8. When God reveals Himself to Abraham, by the way, He falls on His face in reverence before God. And, and God says in verse 4, Behold, My covenant is with thee. You shall be a father of many nations. And then He says in verse 6, what's, He says what? Follow with me in verse 6. You, you, you fill in the blanks for me. And then what? I will. Make thee an exceeding fruitful. I will make thee exceeding fruitful. And I will. Look at verse 7. And I will. Look at verse 8. And I will. And at the end of verse 8, and I will be their God. God, He just piles up promise after promise. I will, I will, I will. Five times here, I believe at least 12 times throughout this chapter. By the way, in this chapter, so what God is going to do is He's going to change Abraham's name. And will, he's, He'll never be called Abram again. He changes Sarah's name. He promises Isaac is going to be born and names Isaac in this chapter. And then he tells him to get circumcised. All these things. This is a very important chapter. The great promises of God. I will, I will. So, what does he do? He gives Abraham a new name. Abram meant exalted father. God had told Abram he would make of him a great nation. But here, how many nations is God going to make for Abraham? What does it say in verse 4? I will make of thee what? You've got to talk to me a little bit. You've got you to gotta make, come on, show me you're interested. You know, show me you're interested in the Bible. I, I, don't, tell, I don't tell stories, too many stories. We're, we're, I tell the Bible. I want to tell you the Bible. Amen? Sorry. I, I get excited about God's Word. Honestly, that's where my excitement comes from, the Word of God. Because God says, I'm going to make of you many nations. You know, you know how much fruit could come forth from one man? Many nations. Wow. El Shaddai. I'm going to change your name to Abraham, father of many nations, or father of a multitude of nations. So Abraham, this name is not just a new label for Abraham, but it marks a new destiny. He's going to be a father of many nations. God gives him a new name in verse 5. Your name shall be called Abraham. And from verse 5 on, he's never called Abram again. It's always Abraham. And then God says, I'm going to give you abundant fruit. I will make the exceeding fruitful. Now, I want you to watch this. Look what it says in verse number 6. God says, I will make thee exceeding fruitful. Now, how do you read that? Is that a promise or a command? Is that a promise or a command? It's a promise. God says, I will make you exceeding fruitful. Now, you know what's significant about that? Every other time God uses the word fruitful up to this point in the Scripture, and, we're, and we're, remember, we're early in Bible history, right? We're only in the 17th chapter of the Bible. So, so many things are happening for the first time. Like in this chapter alone, God reveals Himself as El Shaddai, first time. God... The, the word circumcision appears first time and so forth. So here's the, here's the first time we see that the, the concept of fruitfulness is given as a promise because the other times God commanded the fish of the sea to be what? Be fruitful. God commanded Adam to be what? And Eve, 
Be fruitful. God commanded Noah when he got out of the boat to be fruitful. He commanded them. But here he doesn't command Abraham to be fruitful. Why? He didn't have the power to do it himself. To be fruitful for Abraham required what? The promise of God. The promise of God. You know, rest in the promise of God for fruitfulness. Yes, we want to be fruitful. In some ways, God commands us to be fruitful. But in other ways, we need the, the powerful, miracle work of El Shaddai to make us fruitful. Does that make sense? Abundant fruit given as a promise. I was studying my Bible this week and I came across that truth and I just yelled out a shout. I was like, yeah, praise God. Yes, Lord, for your promise. And Debbie was like on the phone with somebody. She says, is everything all right? You know, she's like, I say, yeah, just getting blessed. The third thing here is eternal agreement. The great promise of God. He's going to make Abraham a new name, give him abundant fruit, and here a, a eternal agreement. Notice the emphasis of these ver- verses in verse 7. God is going to make a covenant, but what kind of a covenant does it say in verse 7? Uh, what kind of covenant? An everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed. And I will give unto thee and to thy seed after thee the land wherein thou art a stranger, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. So God says, I'm going to make you and your seed, with your seed, an everlasting covenant, and I'm going to give you this land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Now, in the clear reading of this, if you were Abraham, how would you read it when he says of Abraham's seed? Do you think Abraham's thinking that everybody who believes like me? Or do you think Abraham is thinking my physical offspring? Physical offspring. And that in, the, in this passage, it's clear the seed is primarily first his son Isaac, and then Isaac's physical descendants. So the land that God is going to give to Abraham's seed has to go as well to the physical descendants of Abraham, which became what? The nation of Israel. So one of the reasons why we are millenarians, in other words, we believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back, establish His kingdom, centered in Jerusalem, over this land God promised to Abraham, is because Jesus Christ is the seed. And ultimately the promise is for the seed of Abraham, the physical seed of Abraham, in Jesus Christ to rule the world as King of kings and Lord of lords. The clear reading here would, as Abraham would have understood God, was that it was his physical seed and physical descendants. And for those who would replace national Israel with the church, I believe is an error. The church never replaces Israel in this promise. It's an unconditional, unilateral covenant God is making with Abraham. He's going to do it no matter what. No matter what. Now, there's another part to it, though, where those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we are of the spiritual seed, if you will. We're we're a part of the promise, too. But that doesn't mean we replace Israel. 
It's an eternal agreement. And by the way, God says He's going to give them the land of Canaan. Whose land is it to give? (laughs) It's God's land to give. It's not the Canaanites' land. It's God's land. And He says, I'm going to give it to you and your seed. The third thing is the miraculous power of God. And just very quickly, I want to walk through these verses. We did not read them earlier. But in these verses, we see the miraculous power of God. And God is promising to fulfill His promises in an impossible way. In verses 15, God said unto Abraham, As for Sarah thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. So there's really no substantive difference between Sarah and Sarai and Sarah. They actually both mean princess, but the spelling is different. Maybe there's some nuance of difference I'm not getting, but from what I read and what I could find, there's really no difference. They both mean princess, but God still says, I'm going to change her name in spelling to Sarah. And He puts a blessing upon her. He says, I will bless her twice in this passage of Scripture. Verse 16, I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her. And she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. So this is really the first time, this is the first time God told to Abraham clearly that your seed is not going to be through Hagar. It's going to be through who? Sarah. Your legitimate wife. So the miraculous power of God. He's going to work in an impossible way. And look at verse 17, Abraham fell upon his face. This is the second time Abraham falls on his face in this chapter. But here, guess what does he do when he falls on his face? In verse 17, what does he do? He laughs. Now, this, a lot of people have looked at this and they say, well, what kind of laugh is this? Is this a laugh of mockery? Or is it a laugh of joyful surprise? Is, is it a laugh of unbelief? Or is it a laugh of, wow, that's too good to be true. Well, you take your pick, honestly. But I believe it was a laugh of joyful surprise. Because it says in Romans that Abraham staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. I'm resting on that verse. Abraham is like us. We believe, but sometimes our faith mingles with our doubt. Was there some level of, like, this is too good to be true? And maybe he doubted somewhat? Yeah, maybe. But ultimately, Abraham believes God. And he's joyfully surprised at the impossibility of it all. Henry Morris says in his commentary, it was not a laugh of doubt, but he laughed with joy and surprise. That's what Morris says. Others say he just was a laugh of mockery. I mean, you kind of have both, both ways on that. But Abraham laughed. Now, what, is, what does Isaac's name mean? It means Laughter. So this is the first time we see Isaac's name connected with laughter. Sarah's going to, when, when Sarah finds out she's going to have a baby, what's she going to do? She's going to laugh. Oh, and by the way, look what this says in verse 17. When he fell on his face and he said, shall a child be born to him that is a hundred years old? There is a sense of like, this is too good to be true. But where does he say that in verse 17? Who does he say that to? Can, can I have a child when I'm a hundred? Who does he say it to? He just said it to himself. So here we have what he said in his heart in the Bible. 
So what does that tell you about God? He knows what you say where? In your own heart. What you, t- what you say to yourself, what you're saying to yourself right now. God knows our hearts like that. God knows Abraham, what's in his heart. And then Abraham, remember before he said, let Eliezer, my servant, be the seed through whom the promise will come. And God said, no, it's not going to be Eliezer. It's going to be your son. And then they figured out that whole terrible scheme and Hagar had Ishmael. And now God's saying, it's not going to be Ishmael. You're going to have a son. In verse number 19, now watch this in 19. Look at this. And God said, Sarah thy wife shall bear thee a son. Now here's the prophecy of God. He's prophesying before Sarah has even conceived, right? Sarah hasn't conceived, but he's prophesying who the mother is. The mother is Sarah. And what is she going to have? There's two genders, and she's going to have a son. And then he says, you shall call his name Isaac. So his son is named. And then, I will establish my covenant with him. So this son was of masculine gender. Because when God makes a boy, they're, they're men. Him, that's his pronoun. You were to ask him. <laughs> For an everlasting covenant and his seed. His seed means he's going to have what? He's going to bring forth more children through who? His wife. That's God's way. Because they've been circumcised and they're living purely before God. So that's a lot of prophecy right there. God says, no, it's not going to be through Ishmael. As Abraham says, let Ishmael be the son. No, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And his name will be Isaac. And verse 21, he says, But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. What an incredible promise. So, God changes Sarah's name here to Sarah, as I mentioned. Her name is Princess. And then in verse 23 through 27, Abraham obeys without any delay. Now, and I'll just summarize verse 23 through 27. Basically, Abraham did what God said to do. He circumcised himself, his children, everyone in his household. And guess when he did it? Abraham's 99 years old. A year from now, God says next year at this time she's going to bear a son. That means... You better get on the stick here, you know. Circumcise yourself so you can get healed and have a baby, okay? <laughs> so, so look what it says in verse 23. When did Abraham do the circumcision? In verse number 23 and also at the beginning of verse 26, twice here. When did he do it? That very same day. That's what you call obedience. Why obey? Because of God's miraculous power, Abraham says, God, you promised this incredible thing. I want to see you do it. I'm going to obey right away and see this happen. We should be excited to obey God. Because when we obey, God works. God works. When we obey, His promises are fulfilled. Abraham wants to see these great promises. And God's a glorious person. God gets glory. And the fourth thing is simply this. 
is the beautiful purity of God. Why should we obey God? Because He is so beautiful in His holiness. The Bible talks about the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. Okay, so let, let me try, I'm going to wrap it up. We're talking about obedience, and the key element of Abraham's obedience in this chapter was circumcision. Now, I had this question, so what about it for us? You know, should we be circumcised based on this prom, command that God gives to Abraham? Abraham wasn't under the Mosaic, this wasn't the Mosaic covenant, this is the Abrahamic covenant. Should we get circumcised? Well, what is the, what is the, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about circumcision, and we talked about how circumcision is, doesn't save, we talked about how circumcision is an outward sign and seal of what happens of the heart, right? So I was thinking about these things. I looked at uh, all the New Testament references to circumcision. We don't have time to look at all of them. I have them referenced here, a number of them. And you might want to turn to Romans chapter 2, and we'll read that as we close. But I want to read this. Can you read it with me? It says, While for Christians... Physical circumcision or uncircumcision is what? Is nothing. And those are the references. Galatians 5, 6, 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Circumcision, if you, you say, I'm not circumcised. Wow, I should get circumcised. It will profit you nothing. Okay? That's the first thing we have to know. What the New Testament teaches. Why? Because believers in Jesus Christ are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. In other words, when we came to Jesus Christ, the sinful worldliness of our heart was cut out. And God gives us a new heart. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 2. He says, Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. You know what concision is? The Jewish people who were circumcised but didn't have faith. They just mutilated that part of their body and didn't circumcise it. Circumcision must accompany, if the real meaning of it, it must accompany faith. He says the Jewish... Now, and it's, it, that's an amazing verse. Paul's like super bold. Because the Jewish people called the Gentiles dogs. Paul is calling the Jewish people who are fighting him, says they're the real dogs. They're acting like wild animals against us, persecuting us. Paul was a dog, in that sense, persecuting the Christians. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, look it up. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision... Then he says, here it is, for we are the circumcision. True Christians, we fulfill the ultimate meaning of this circumcision, which worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, stick with me. I know you you have to listen long and hard here. But what does it mean to have no confidence in the flesh? I'm asking that question. What does it mean, he says, and have no confidence in the flesh? He says, how does this all happen? By living in holiness and purity. 
We have the distinguishing mark that is the proof of our ownership and consecration to God. So we are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So circumcision is a sign. It's a mark of identification. It's a seal. It's a proof of our ownership. We've been circumcised spiritually. And we have the true sign and seal that we are truly the Lord Jesus Christ in our hearts. And just like circumcision was personal, it is also public. And it is for our purity. That's the sign. That's the seal, beloved. See, we have believed in the Son of God. We have repented of sin. We have cut off the sinful passions of our heart. We have named the name of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2.19 Let every man that hath the seal and who names the name of Christ do what? Depart from iniquity. That's the sign. That's the seal. Holiness of life. Departing from iniquity. Being holy as God is holy. Living pure. Philippians chapter 3. We don't put confidence in the flesh. And what does that mean? You know what that means? This world believes the ultimate pleasure of life, the ultimate joys of this life are physical things. That's why they're getting drunk. That's why they're committing adultery. That's why they live in fornication. That's why they're looking at pornography. That's why they're doing what they want to do for that momentary blast of sin and pleasure. That's putting confidence in your flesh. Putting confidence in your flesh is the greatest pleasure I can have in this life is sin. Paul said, no. The greatest pleasure of this life is Jesus. The joy of Jesus. Not in fleshly pursuits, but in God Himself. We are the true circumcision, which live holy lives, for He is holy. A holy and pure life is the sign. It's the seal of the circumcision of the heart. And I'm almost done. One last thing. You see, circumcision was a commitment to purity, both private and public. So, how do we apply this message today? Repent from fornication. What's fornication? Premarital sexual intimacy? Or self-pleasuring through pornography? Repent. Don't put confidence in your flesh. It's not the way to go. People who give themselves over to fornicate. Why are so few people getting married today compared to past? Why, why are so few people getting married today? Because they're doing what? They're shacking up? Or they're doing what they want to do as they sit in front of a computer screen? Why get married? Pleasure myself. Live in fornication. Guys don't want to get married. A guy will not marry you if you give him sex. Don't do it until you get married. Amen? A lot of Christians don't live right here. I'm, 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 <laughs> let's face it. We need to repent. Fornication, premarital sex, is a terrible sin because it attacks the marriage, the, the marriage contract. Just like adultery does. When people give in to adultery, they're breaking up the, the home that they vowed to maintain. They're living in impurity. Adultery is a sin as well. That sexual intimacy outside of the marriage bond, 
or with others, if you're in marriage, with, with those outside your marriage, it's a wicked sin. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. His vessel, I believe, are his private sexual organs, possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Satan wants to lead you into fornication, into adultery, into sins. But we are people of the circumcision. Let's be pure publicly and privately. Let's stand together. I'm going to read Romans chapter 2 as we close. This got a little uncomfortable, I know. (laughs) I was like, how do you preach on circumcision, you know? Well, I just did. I tried to be as discreet as possible. I hope it was a challenge to you. Because the, the concept is all through the Bible. It's all through the Bible. That's why I'm preaching on it. And Paul mentions it here as we close. Just read this and then we'll pray together. Romans chapter 2. Paul says, For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. And he's using a play on the word Jew. Jew means giving praise to God. So how do we really give praise to God? Not just through physical circumcision. He says not, not that of the circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew. That is... The one who truly gives praise to God in their life, publicly, privately, and giving and living a pure life, which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Let's bow our heads together. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. and Just put your hand up to the Lord, please, and say, God, help me. To live a life of praise to You. Help me to praise You personally in my life. And give me victory over the sins of the flesh. And help me to praise You publicly in my life. And not be ashamed of Your Gospel. I want to obey You, Lord. Because You're a glorious person, El Shaddai. Hallelujah. Because of Your great promises that You will do. Because of Your miraculous power to do exceeding abundantly even above what You ask or think. And because of Your your beautiful purity, the beauty of Your holiness. Oh God, help me to be holy. Help us. Father God, all of us are sinners. All of us struggle with indwelling sin. All of us are filthy and undone. As the prophet Isaiah even said, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Have mercy on us, O God. All of us need to repent and turn from uncleanness in our personal and maybe our public lives. Forgive us, O God. May we be pure as You are pure because You have circumcised us with the circumcision without hands. You've circumcised our heart. So thank You, Lord. Is there anyone here today who'd say, Pastor Matt, pray for me. I'm not saved. One simple question. That's all I'll ask today. I'm not saved, but I need Jesus Christ to save me, change my desires, give me eternal life. I need to repent of my sin, believe in Christ, have eternal life. I need to lay hold of eternal life. I'm not sure if I die today, I'd go to heaven. Pray for me, preacher. Is there anyone like that? Just put your hand up. Is there anyone like that? That I could pray for you. Father, thank You now for this day, Lord. Keep us singing. Keep us praising You as Your people. In Jesus' name.
Amen.